0: Welcome to the GTFO podcast. This is Holly Kaplan. For those of you who don't know, GTFO means get the F out. In this podcast, we will be discussing how to get the F out. How to get the F out of a bad situation, predicament, or something you want to flat change. I'll be interviewing individuals who have had to GTFO. Expect to hear stories of those who experience situations of despair, pain, and fear and the only way to escape it was to gtfo through this podcast i want to give you the listeners the power and courage to make life changes should you need to gtfo today we're going to talk about addiction specifically of addiction to drugs and alcohol but let's go back to the word itself addiction to get a better understanding of what it really means addiction is a complex condition A brain disease, which I did not know, that is manifested by compulsive substance abuse despite harmful consequences. People with addiction have an intense focus on using a certain substance, such as alcohol or drugs, to the point that it takes over their life. They keep using alcohol or a drug, even when they know it will cause problems. People with addictive disorders may be aware of their problem, but they are unable to stop it, even if they want to the addiction may cause health problems as well as problems at work and with family members and friends. My guest today is fellow Dallas resident Brian Cuban. Brian is going to share his personal journey with addiction and how he was able to GTFO. But before we speak to him, I'd like to highlight his background, accomplishments, and leadership roles because he has many Brian Cuban, the younger brother of Dallas Mavericks owner and entrepreneur Mark Cuban, is a Dallas-based attorney, author, and addiction recovery advocate. He's a graduate of Penn State University and the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Brian has been in long-term recovery from alcohol, cocaine, and bulimia since April 2007. In his first book, Shattered Image My Triumph Over Body Dysmorphic Disorder, chronicles his firsthand experiences living with and recovering from 27 years of eating disorders and body dysmorphic disorder, also known as BDD. Brian's most recent best selling book, The Addicted Lawyer Tales of the Bar, Booze, Blow, and Redemption, is an unflinching look back at how addiction and other mental health issues destroyed his career as a once successful lawyer and how he And others in the profession redefined their lives in recovery and found redemption. And I got to tell you, I just read the book and I was just telling Brian I flew through it and I loved it. And I know that our listeners will too. Brian has spoken at colleges, universities, conferences, nonprofit, and legal events across the United States and in Canada. He has appeared on prestigious talk shows such as the Katie Couric Show, as well as numerous media outlets around the country. He also writes extensively on these subjects. His columns have appeared, and he has been quoted on these topics on CNN.com, Fox News, The Huffington Post, Above the Law, The New York Times, and in online and print newspapers around the world. Brian, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me, Holly.
0: Well, I'm thrilled to have you here, and I've done a lot of background work on you, and I've studied you, and I feel like I already know you. So I'm thrilled that you're with me. Um, But I have several questions for you today, sir. And I'd I'd like to start with going back to Pittsburgh. I'd like to know more about your history. So would you mind starting with your life in Pittsburgh? And will you give us some color as what your world was like growing up?
1: Sure. Uh, Born, I'm a baby boomer. So I grew up in Pittsburgh uh, in the 70s. I was in my teens in the 70s, uh, the middle of three boys. Mark uh, is the oldest. Jeff, I have a younger brother, Jeff. And Mark, as you might imagine, uh, was uh, very outgoing and entrepreneurial even as a teen, selling this door-to-door, selling that door-to-door. I remember one time our local newspaper went on strike, and he and his buddies drove from Pittsburgh to Cleveland, bought their newspapers, and drove them back to Pittsburgh and sold them on a street corner for twice what they paid for him.
0: I love that. My <laughs> That's brother. the spirit.
1: Yes. You knew what he was going to be. So. <laughs> yeah. and He kind of proved that. My younger brother, Jeff, was a jock, nationally ranked wrestler, good kid, good looking guy, beer parties, all those things, dates, prom, all the things that I equated with love and acceptance. And I was classic middle child syndrome. I was shy. I was reserved. And I internalized anything negative said to me and wore it as who I was, kind of like a skin tight suit. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I also had a difficult relationship with my mom and I'll tell you a little bit about this But I want to make it clear to all your listeners That I do not blame my parents for anything. I went through parents do not cause eating disorders Parents do not cause addiction. There is a difference between cause and correlation and Correlation means it'll happen to some people and won't happen to others There was a lot of fat shaming in my house Uh, I was a kid that trended towards heavy as it was and I used to come home. I would come home from school and eat Chef Boyardee ravioli out of the can. My mother would come home from, at that time, she was selling real estate, see me doing that and say, Brian, if you keep eating like that, you're going to be a fat pig. Now, these were the things my mother's mother said to her. These were the things my great-grandmother said to my grandmother. I came from a, very, a Jewish Eastern European family. Uh, there was a very dysfunctional relationship around food. My mother had a very dysfunctional relationship with her bipolar mother. And so this wasn't anything I certainly blamed my mom for. These were just things handed down uh, to a young mother who had her own mental health issues in the 70s at a time when a woman talking about mental health issues, you could be committed. Right. So these right. things simply were not discussed.
0: Right. How did that impact you when you were a child? Because I had something similar happen. To, like you had with your mom, well, and I, f- I forgive her, but how did that impact you? Because I just thought it was normal. Like it I, had
1: a, it had a major impact on me. Yeah, uh, it affected my self image, and I began to eat. I, the food became a crutch for me to feel better. Right. I began to eat more and more ravioli, ravioli, and I became a bigger brine and a bigger brine. And then, and then, as so often happens when kids change for what other kids perceive in the negative at school the bullying started it Mm. happened then and it happens today in a much different way with the internet yeah back then 15 kids in the lunchroom knowing about it meant it went viral but uh kids made fun of me and called me a fat pig and all of the teasing and the fat shaming and it all kind of the bullying culminated in what i call the day of the gold pants my brother Mark gave me a pair of shiny gold bell bottom disco pants. <laughs> <laughs> this was a disco era. My we were just so bee of- I love it. Yes, if your uh, listeners know John Travolta, but uh, I wasn't John Travolta. And Mark taught disco. I wasn't John Travolta. These things, <laughs> these pants fit Mark well. I had to jump up and down, spray the water bottle. My butt looked like 15 cats back there when I was wearing Aww, them. Oh but i didn't care because mark gave them to me i love my brother they were a symbol of his love for me and i wore those pants to school every day stood them up in the corner the kids made fun of them they fat shamed me and i'm walking home from school one day a mile from my house in pittsburgh with these kids who in my mind were the popular kids the prom kings the prom queens the kids who were getting invited to the football games the after school parties but Some of them were also the bullies. But in my mind, if I hung around them, bullies or not, one day the hazing would be over and they would invite me into their clique. And that's just not the way bullying works, is it? We're walking home and they're making fun of my shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants. And they just decide among themselves that I'm just too fat to wear them. And they start pulling at them, tearing at them. And the next thing I know, they've ripped these pants off me, tore them into shreds exposing me in my Fruit of the Loom tidy whities, threw the shreds out in a busy street and went on like they had done the funniest thing ever.
0: How did that leave you? How did that leave you?
1: I walk out in the street. I pick up the shreds and I cover up my privates and I waddle home. People walked and no one stopped. The house was quiet. I went down into the basement and I put these shreds underneath tons of garbage, hoping that no one would ever know my shame or my humiliation. And it was right around then that I remember really seeing a reflection in the mirror that was more of a monster than a normal little boy, a quote-unquote fat pig. And it was around then that I really began to feel the pangs of depression and hopelessness and the thought that I would never be loved by my mother, although she loved me dearly. Right. I would never be loved, but I would never go on a date. I would never kiss a girl. I would never hold hands with a girl, and I was destined to be a lonely fat pig for the rest of my life.
0: Oh, that had to do a number on you. I mean, it hurts hearing it. I'm trying to imagine it as a young boy to have all those feelings. That's pretty heavy.
1: And if, if we talk about trauma and the effect trauma has on us throughout our lives, and how trauma threads through our lives, that incident was so traumatic that I could take you to that spot in Pittsburgh, PA and show you exactly where it happened.
0: That's like PTSD. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, exactly where and when it happened. Did you tell your parents, Brian, did they know this happened to you that day? No, didn't tell anyone
1: until I wrote my book, Shattered Image. Wow.
0: Wow. But I remembered. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sorry that you experienced that. It hurts me. It really does. It hurts to hear that someone had to go through that.
1: And I did have, I, I did have some friends. We were kind of the, uh, you know, kind of the reject click that we. a few of us hung around. We smoked pot, and I really had no ambition, and uh, <laughs> I did do well enough to get into Penn State University, but I just kind of muddled through high school, taking the path of least resistance.
0: Right, right. Well, how did these experiences impact your confidence and your need for acceptance in your teen years? Because you said you would stand by the bullies and just hope that one day they would be like, oh, he's a cool guy. And like you said, that doesn't happen. I've been bullied before myself. How did that impact you?
1: My lack of confidence and my continued need for acceptance Uh uh, came together along with other environmental and genetic variables to uh, track me into an eating disorder as a freshman at Penn State, Uh, bulimia, Uh, binging and purging. And when I binged and purged, I really got this feeling of peace the feeling that the next day everything was going to be okay, that I would be loved, that I would be accepted. But when that feeling went away after the purge, in swept in the shame of engaging in an act I didn't understand, this was mm-hmm. 1979.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Nobody was talking about eating disorders for anyone, let alone males. The singer Karen Carpenter had not yet passed away from complications relating to anorexia bringing eating disorders into the pre-digital national spotlight. That wouldn't occur till 1983. This was 1979. I had no idea that binging and purging was an eating disorder, but, what I, but, it, but it felt inherently shameful, but I kept doing it.
0: So it was and, a cycle. It became yes, a cycle. It was a vicious cycle,
1: and I transitioned into what is known as exercise bulimia, which is obsessive-compulsive exercise for the primary p- purpose of offsetting calories. So I was binging and purging traditionally, and I was running 10 miles a day, 20 miles a day, all in the futile quest to love myself.
0: When you started this cycle and you had the first inclination to, to binge and purge, did you know what was happening? Did you know what you were going through? It was just like a natural reaction.
1: It was a natural transition. Uh
0: uh And
1: of course, you're asking me to remember four decades. I mean, that was 1979. How many decades, four decades ago. But uh, I remember bright line moments. And I don't remember a bright line moment for that. Uh, I I remember the first time I did, but I don't want to get into in terms of uh, when that happened. And it's in my first book. But I don't want to trigger anyone who may be dealing with an eating disorder.
0: Right. That's so fair. I won't
1: go into specifics, but, uh, it was more, it was more just a progression that I remember.
0: Well, you can see how it can happen. And I, I appreciate it. How you, how you explained it because you can see the, the process and the cycle and how it takes over your life. Now at the same time, you, were you engaged in drugs and alcohol all the while? Uh,
1: I transitioned I, I had been drink. I drank and I was more of a binge drinker in high school. Yeah. But, uh, I transitioned into heavy alcohol use, uh, moving into my sophomore year in college, uh, because I was constantly, I, I really wanted to, uh, I, was, I was inherently, I was instinctively looking for ways to fix myself and mute my feelings or feel better about myself, and unfortunately, the directions I was taking were destructive, and moving into my sophomore year at Penn State, before I knew it, I was a quote-unquote alcoholic. And I put that in quotes because the actual clinical diagnosis is alcohol use disorder. Alcoholic is a label we give ourselves. It's not a medical diagnosis. Wow. But uh, I was drinking almost every night alone. I was. This was now at the main campus at Penn State and University Park, PA. I was going to our liquor stores, our state stores, and buying bottles of tequila and drinking them alone so I could get drunk before I went out to get drunk, (laughs) get drunk or at the bar. And it was almost always alone. Yeah, oh. always. I, I was a solo drinker. I had very few friends. Uh, my, I remember my entire four years at Penn State as a really just a saga of loneliness and drinking and self hatred. It was not a good time for me. And uh, so, yeah. So between the. And I was also binging and purging and running, and I was putting a lot of stress on my body with those three destructive behaviors.
0: They're all opposing behaviors. Like, I can't imagine being hungover and getting up and running. Like You're in I a can't.
1: constant state of dehydration, which uh-uh. uh, put a lot uh-uh. of stress on the heart.
0: Now, I have a question for you here. Did anyone see this in you and say, hey, Brian, what's going on? Did anyone bring this to your attention?
1: No, nah, this, uh, this was the early 80s.
0: <laughs> yeah. You didn't
1: have, I mean, one... Uh, from an alcohol standpoint, you really you didn't have the residential treatment. You didn't have campus awareness. You didn't have all of this awareness we have today. Unless you happen to know somebody in 12-step, and for those who don't know, the most well-known of the alcohol-focused 12-step is Alcoholics Anonymous, but uh, there are other ones. But uh, unless somebody happened to be in one of those groups and reached out to you, there was nowhere to
0: turn. Right. That's a and good point, always- though.
1: There's a stigma today, and it was exponentially more stigmatized back then.
0: Yeah. And to your point, there was not this type of awareness. There weren't as many safe places to land, or really any, if there you were had no safe places. Right. 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 Well,
1: you were either you were either in a hospital, in a ward, not residential treatment, in a twelve step group, or
0: you were on the street struggling with it. Well, how long were you able to keep this a secret or under wraps? Which one? The
1: drinking? I mean, well, the drinking is never a secret because people around you drink, but you fit right in. As an example, I remember that the closest I ever came on the campus of Penn State to any self-awareness that I might have a drinking issue was uh, walking into a White Cat or a White Tower hamburger joint, Mm -hmm. and there was a rack of pamphlets that the twelve-step groups put out. And it's called the 20 questions and they're geared towards college students. You open it up and they have all these questions. Do you black out? Do you miss class? And I'm trying to focus on it. I walked in there drunk, of course, about one in the morning. And to my mind, I was just another college student. Everyone drank, everyone went to the bars and I fit right in. So that was much easier to justify than myself. Uh, but at that point, I also had no clue that I had an eating disorder. I didn't come to terms with my eating disorder until my mid 40s. But I didn't know that it was shameful. I did feel that it was shameful when I was very good at camouflaging what I was doing.
0: Right. And by your mid-40s, there was more and more information on eating disorders. It was much more public. So um, was that the point where you realized that that's what you were dealing with?
1: Uh, At that point, I knew I had an eating disorder. But you have to remember that, well, there was a lot more awareness yeah. Uh, eating disorder disorders were still and are still very much stigmatized for males. Yeah. Uh, even though we know that approximately now the latest stats, I'm told up to 40 to 50% of all those suffering from eating disorders are male. And most people still view it as a female disorder.
0: Very true. And yeah.
1: males are only, uh, one in 10 ma- only one in 10 males will seek treatment. So I, uh, I knew that when we moving fast forwarding into my forties, I knew that I, at that point that I had an eating disorder, but in my mind, I was the only person and only male in the world suffering from it.
0: Right. So again, you probably internalized that too. Yes. You probably kept that in. And again, at this point in law, life, mom and dad, siblings, they still had no idea. No. Had no idea. Okay. Okay. I just have to imagine what that would feel like to go through that. Um,
1: well, and, and it's also a matter of environmental circumstance too. Right, I was out right. of the house at 18 yeah uh then i was in law i was in away at college then when i pit law i lived at home a bit but I, I had my i was in a campus there there's there are always ways to camouflage your behaviors mm-hmm. you get a P- I, I always kid i have a i have i have a jd in law but i have a phd in camouflaging my destructive behavior.
0: <laughs> oh boy well um I want to go into addiction a little bit here. When your family realized that you did have your addiction, how did that impact them?
1: The people it impacted were my two brothers, Mark and Jeff, because my parents still didn't know. And when it all came, that all came to a head in July of 2005 when uh, I decided that uh, there was really, in my mind, no other way out and I would be doing my family a favor to take my life by suicide. And I was very lucky uh, that a very good friend, who's still my very good friend today, Angelo, after receiving some disturbing emails from me, reached out to both of my brothers uh, who came into my house just off Northwest Highway. And I had a 45 automatic on my nightstand. And there was cocaine and Xanax spread out everywhere. And I was really, who knows at what point, I would have uh, used that weapon on myself. Uh, But it was there and ready. And Jeff came in first because Mark had to fly in from LA. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he took the weapon and Mark came in and they cleaned up all the drugs and flushed them and uh, dragged me kicking and screaming on my first of two trips down to Green Oaks Hospital. Mm -hmm. They're trying to save my life and all I want is for them to be out of my life so i can go back to my world of darkness depression cocaine Xanax and the people who truly don't judge me at least until the cocaine runs out right oh, the people gosh. i party with yeah but they they took me down there and my head cleared a little bit and it occurred to me i'm a lawyer they're, that they are going to try to put a, a psychiatric hold on me and so I'm, when i'm in this psychiatrist uh, in the room with the attending psychiatrist and the and the psych- psychiatric nurse and my two brothers, I knew what to say. I'm not a danger to myself. I'm not a danger to others. I wasn't going to use that weapon. And much to the chagrin of my two brothers, uh, they couldn't hold me. Now we have to keep in mind, Holly, that there's a saying that addiction doesn't discriminate. Recovery does. Okay, and recovery discriminates by privilege. I sit here fully acknowledging that I went through addiction and recovery with all kinds of privilege that sure. the vast majority of people struggling do not have. I, I had a brother looking through Yellow Pages in the hall for residential treatment facilities and looking at places all across the country ready to send me if I wanted to go without regards to insurance or anything.
0: You had that support. You I, had that-
1: I had that. I mean, a lot of people have support, but I had that privilege, that financial privilege, privilege. And so we have to, I would be disingenuous to not acknowledge that. But it was a path I didn't want to take. And as so often happens in addiction, they're saying you can lead the horse to water, but I didn't want to drink it. Laying the path is one thing. Uh, The person wanting to take the path is the crucial step, right? Because you can't make someone do that unless there's been, an, and even then, I mean, the jails become our biggest, unfortunately, our biggest treatment providers, so my brothers took me back home and we did what I call jokingly call the Cuban rehab. Uh, they said, we're going to take your car keys and you stay in your house for two weeks and everything's going to be OK. My response to that was no problem. My drug dealer delivers. Ironically, as soon as they left the house, I called a cab uh, to the car dealership and had, it, and had a new set of keys made. They weren't going to tell me what to do.
0: Right. You mentioned that in your book, too. You're like, I have a way around this. I'm going to get another set of keys. I got it. Yeah. So take me to 2007 because didn't this happen again or something similar happened?
1: Well, Uh, yeah. To give people an example of just how crazy things got for me and how out of control, chaotic things got, let's back up to 2006. Okay. The Dallas Mavericks are going to the NBA championship for the very first time. Uh, And as you might imagine, I was going to get some pretty good seats for those games. I also had the opportunity to get a couple tickets for friends. I called up Mark, said, sure, come on over. Here are the tickets. I didn't give them to my friends. I didn't sell them for an astronomical amount on eBay. I called up my cocaine dealer and traded them to my cocaine dealer for $1,000 in cocaine. My dealer shows up at my house. He delivered. Remember, I was high class. Right, (laughs) right. I hand him the tickets. He gives me this big Ziploc baggie of cocaine. I go running upstairs to my home office. I dump it out on the desk looking at this cocaine mountain like I'm Scarface. <laughs> and I, I line some out and I do it. But cocaine had, at this point had long stopped giving me the feeling of love and acceptance and euphoria that I achieved when I had done it earlier in my life. When I had done it the first for the very first time in a bathroom in Crescent Center in uh, 1987 downtown. Now it was just pain and shame and chasing the high and paranoia. I'm thinking the cops are outside, I'm going to get arrested. So I put the cocaine away, I hide it, I drive to a Home Depot up the tollway where I buy electrical faceplate outlets, a drill and a saw. I drive back home and I go to the drywall in my bedroom closet and other closets, and I drill these fake electrical outlets in my closets. And I take the cocaine, put it in all these smaller Ziploc baggies and drill up, put screws in these fake electrical outlets, thinking I'm the smartest lawyer ever. Like the DEA, the cops and the drug dogs have never thought of that one before. And I did some more. And again, just pain and shame and paranoia. I go back to those same electrical outlets. I unscrew them. I take the cocaine and I flush it all down the toilet. Now $900 worth. Yeah. The next morning comes and it so often happens when an event gets in the rearview mirror uh, I wake up and I think well, I'm such an idiot. I'm a moron. I flushed $900 down the <laughs> toilet last night. Of, of blow, who does that? There's another game tonight. <laughs> I get two more tickets from my brother. Another call to my drug dealer. He comes over to my house. He says, "Dude, you did all that last night. I didn't want to tell him I, I was an idiot and flushed it all down the toilet." Yes, <laughs> I did. Give me more. He said, "Okay, here you go." He gives it to me. I go upstairs, rinse, wash, repeat. I do some, I get paranoid, I hide it again, I do some more, I take it, and I put it back in the Ziploc baggie, and one more time, Holly, I go to that same bathroom and drop to my knees, like I had done so many times before, praying or hoping, wishing someone or something to take away my pain and my shame, and I flushed it down the toilet again. They say when Dallas flushes, it ends up in Houston, so some people in Houston got <laughs> a little high those two nights. But the insanity of addiction, right? But it's, uh, doing the same thing the same way over and expecting a different result. But it's not insane. As you talked about earlier, it's a biological, brain-based pro- uh, problem that affects so many of us.
0: Right. I'm just in that awe of the cycle. I, I'm in awe of the cycle and the pattern and the chase for something to calm you down and then feeling the shame. And then it repeats. That's right. Um, I would it, feel it, like I it, was stuck it, in a loop. I would feel it's, like I was stuck in a loop. It's yeah. this
1: empty gnawing hole in the stomach, uh, that I was constantly trying to fill, but it could never be filled, and in my heart as well, and in my soul. Fast forward to April two thousand and seven. I had uh, and I had, in April two thousand and six. I had met my current wife Amanda, uh, or in April and January of two thousand six. We had begun dating. She didn't know anything about my issues. I was like I said, I have a Ph.D. in camouflage. We moved in together and I remember one of my friends asking me when we moved in together, Brian, you do what you do. She doesn't do what you do. How are you going to how are you going to manage that? And I said to him, this will cause me to stop. So I'm starting now to think about the fact that I have an issue. Right. That's called the stages of change. I'm in the contemplation stage of change, thinking about the fact that I have an issue. But maybe not quite ready to make the changes I need.
0: Right. But you thought, okay, so now I'll stop. Now, because Amanda's in my life, now things will be different.
1: She will be the precipitator for me to stop. Okay. But I didn't. I just hid it from her. Fast forward to April 2007, Easter weekend. She went away to visit her parents. I go out. I think I'd gone to, uh, man, the name of the bar, the Ghost Bar down across from the American Airlines Center. It was a Friday, and the next thing I know, it's two days later. I'm lying in bed. She's looking down at me. There's cocaine everywhere. There are beer bottles everywhere. Um, there's cocaine line out on the dresser. I don't know what day it is. She's looking at me probably thinking, did I walk in the right house? I'm looking at her thinking, what day is it? Oh, I had a blackout, a drug and alcohol-induced blackout. And in my mind, as the lawyer, I'm trying to think, what lie can I tell to explain this law and order orgy of evidence that I might not be the person she thought I was? And she's a lawyer as well. So there was no lying. So all I could think of was the metaphorical, take me home to mama. I said, take me back to Green Oaks. She looks at me. You've been to Green Oaks?
0: No idea. There
1: are some things you don't know about me. We'll talk about that later. (laughs) And in my mind, I just needed more time to find a good lie that she was going to believe to explain this, the unexplainable, right? Well, there was an explanation and she wasn't going to buy any of it. So she drives me back down to, you know, she's crying. And we're standing in the parking lot waiting for intake. And like I said, she's crying and I'm, I'm thinking she's going to leave. I'd leave. She didn't leave. She actually stood by me and we dated for over a decade. Uh, well, I rebuilt the broken trust, yeah, well, I found recovery, and now we're uh going on four years of marriage uh over wow. fourteen years together, so not all relationships will survive that, but ours was able to and, and and it survived because one because she's a saint, and two because I had to do the work for me. I couldn't right. do the recovery work for her, for my brothers, for my father, for my mother. Because people do leave when we're in recovery. People die. Parents die. I lost my father two and a half years ago. It's still raw. Uh, Pets, we lose pets. Trauma happens. And my recovery had to withstand all of that. Sure. And so, and I thought about my father standing in that parking lot. My father, who was the veteran of the Pacific, fought in Okinawa, greatest generation, fought in Korea. Mm -hmm. I thought about something he used to say to Mark and Jeff and I growing up. And I'm sorry about that. I don't know where my phone is. I thought about something he used to say to Mark and Jeff and I growing up. He'd say, guys, no matter what happens in life, no matter where you go, pick up the phone, call your brother, tell your brother you love him. My father was the middle of three boys. This is how he was raised. And I thought about what he said to us about that. And how we had lived, exemplifying the bond of family, the bond of brothers of love that he had instilled in us growing up. And we want to know how that bond took all these decades later, 1,200 miles from Pittsburgh, PA, where we grew up. Mark, Jeff, and I live walking distance to each other. And I don't mean metaphorically, we, we live walking distance. Until my father passed. He lived across the street from me, and again, I mean literally across the street. And so, I wasn't ready to lose my family. And that doesn't mean I'd lose their love, but family's distance—they get tired of that. They get helpless. They—they they have their families. I wouldn't want a coked up and drunk Brian around my nephews, right? I don't blame them.
0: Right. Sure.
1: Sure. I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to dishonor the bond that our father instilled in us.
0: I admire that. I admire that though. That's that's your foundation. That's who yeah. you are. You know, and you guys live live to that to this day.
1: Yes. And so I decided standing in that parking lot that it was time. Time to take that first scary step forward. Time to push myself out of the airplane and trust that the parachute will open. The next day, I walked into my psychiatrist's office, who I'd been lying to, lying to, lying to, who I'd seen for a couple <laughs> years, getting money, getting my antidepressants, while I'm also snorting blow
0: and doing alcohol, kind of cancel out <laughs> each other. Multitasking, multitasking. Yeah. multitasking, yeah.
1: And I finally started getting honest with him and allowing myself to be vulnerable about what I was going through. He said to me, Brian, okay, we have a lot of issues to get to, but first you have to get sober. We can't address any of this while you're doing, engaging in these destructive behaviors. Would you consider residential treatment? And I shrugged off residential treatment. I was much too busy and much too important lawyer to go to residential treatment. I actually had no cases left. My law practice had cratered due to my drug and alcohol use. And, but that was Ego. He says, Would you consider 12 step? And I kind of exploded. I'm not going at 12 step. I see them out there. <laughs> and again, the most well known at 12 step is Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I, I see them out there smoking. I can't, the secondhand smoke will kill you, doctor. You're like, That's oh, not me. I don't belong oh, there. That's right. I'm not one of those uh-huh, uh-huh. ego and ego out the door. But I knew I had to do something at a minimum to show Amanda to show my brothers, because my parents didn't know anything at this point, that I was taking a step forward. So at this point, I was going to do it for them. Right. And so I walked in. I grudgingly walked into my first 12-step meeting. And I sat down in that room, and I'm crying, and I'm sweating, and I smell, and I'm listening to stories, and I'm comparing the stories in there. Oh, yeah, that's bad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ah, that's not too bad. (laughs) None of these people have traded Dallas Mavericks championship tickets for cocaine. They don't know my problems, right? Ego, ego. And let me tell you what I wanted when I sat in that room. I didn't know if I was a quote unquote alcoholic. But here's what I did know sitting Mm -hmm. there that one day that if sitting in that room would allow me to wake up the next morning and for the first time in my life, walk to the mirror in my bathroom, birthday suit naked, stare at myself in the mirror, and love Brian without the aid of alcohol or drugs, I would sit in that room. If it would allow me to love Brian for the first time in my life without those things, I would sit in that room.
0: You just gave me chills.
1: And I sat in that room. And I sat and I sat and I... Developed my compassionate community in that room of people who didn't drink. And and early on, that compassionate community in that room, the mutual aid was important because there was a strong pull back to the old lifestyle. When you're sitting at home alone, Mm -hmm. and all I've known for decades is party, 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 cocaine, 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 divorce, 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 all related to drugs and alcohol.
0: Right. Pattern, pattern, pattern. all of and it. And
1: soothing and rebounding from those divorces with drug, 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 alcohol. Yeah, you're right, the pattern. And so that can be a strong pull and a very easy relapse. So it was important to have the people in those rooms, people that I still uh, am friends with today. And so even though I don't sit in those rooms as much as I should, especially uh, now with the pandemic, but uh, although you can do it online. Sure.
0: Sure. But, but they're uh, your support system. Sure,
1: Sure. and I developed a support system outside of that. Now, my brothers are my support system. My wife is my support system. My cats are my support system. I have a compassionate community outside of twelve step now, and so I've I've developed uh, a good circle of people, a compassion wheel of people who I can call and who call me when they're struggling. And today I am uh, approaching thirteen and a half years without taking a drink, without using drugs or without binging and purging.
0: Congratulations. Congratulations over and over again. That's a huge deal. That's a huge deal. I'm very proud of you. And I'm just so glad that you've been so open in sharing the story. It sounds like, Brian, your GTFO moment was your 12-step meeting.
1: Uh, My GTFO moment was standing in that parking lot. Okay. Realizing that I was about to lose my family.
0: That was the most important thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. The,
1: the, the, uh, the mutual aid, the compassionate community certainly was the, uh, part of the core of, uh, of my recovery, but the, the pivotal moment was that parking lot.
0: What do you think would have happened to you without the support of your brothers and Amanda, what would have happened to Brian? I don't like revisionist recovery
1: because what did happen is what got me here talking to you. Okay. Yeah. Otherwise you can go, uh, Otherwise, I, you start going back. I, I try to find lessons from the past that I can uh, impart onto others, but I don't look back with regrets from the past or try to wonder what would happen if things went differently. But uh, I think it's safe to say that I might not be alive today.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know you're very grateful to have such a good family and to have such a good support system. So, I am. Very. And Amanda sounds like she's amazing. She, she sounds is. like she's a super, super woman, so I have to acknowledge that. She is. Um, Brian, what advice do you have for other people who are struggling with their own addictions? What would you tell them?
1: I would tell them that recovery is not easy. Obsessive compulsive desire to use substances is difficult. hmm Otherwise, it wouldn't be obsessive compulsive, right? But recovery is possible. And I would tell them in that for me, finding the people, creating a list of the people that I love and risking that love, fighting through the projection of every awful thing they're going to say to me mm-hmm. was the most important thing for me. Find the people you love, but list out the people you love. Who loves you? Are you projecting out the worst possible result? That is what happens with thought processes. We we project out the worst and come up with reasons not to reach out for help. Fight through that. Reach out. Allow yourself to be helped. Allow yourself to be vulnerable. Allow yourself to be loved. It's not easy. Again, it's not easy to push yourself off the airplane, right? Because you don't know if you're going to end up a splat. You you think you're going to end up a splat on the sidewalk. But the parachute opens.
0: Well, I love that. Make yourself vulnerable, which I could hear in your story. You are ready to make yourself vulnerable to get change. Make a list of people who love you. I mean, that's a great way to get started, I think. And make a list of the people you love. Sometimes
1: it's, not, it's easier said than done. There are dysfunctional relationships with families. Parents aren't speaking. Siblings aren't speaking. Broaden the list. Who's the listener in your group? Why, what? What what negative thought have you projected out that you haven't allowed that person to be a listener?
0: You're limiting yourself by doing that.
1: You're cutting off an opportunity before you give anyone the chance to, uh, validate or disprove it.
0: When you could really use them and they would probably really be there for you. Yes. You are not your thoughts. Right. You are not your thoughts. It's funny that you say that because the next podcast I'm doing is on limiting beliefs. (laughs)
1: And how to get out of your own way. So that's perfect. Well, that's a critical part of addiction.
0: Recovery as well. Is limiting beliefs? Yeah, it's limiting negative. Yes.
1: Over half the thoughts we have in a day are negative thoughts.
0: Oh, all the and time. If I'm not worrying about something, I don't feel normal.
1: In the, va- in the vast majority of them, there is a statistic on this. But I'll say the vast majority are not based in reality.
0: We worry about all the horrible things constantly. I do. So That's right. I get it. I totally get it. Brian, if someone wants to connect with you for a speaking engagement, or just to learn more about you, how can they find you?
1: You can go to my website at www.briancuban.com with an I, where I blog and you can see uh, contact me about speaking or just email me at brian at briancuban.com,
0: Brian with an I. That's perfect. That's perfect. And I saw a teaser that you might have another book in the works.
1: I do. I have another book coming out called The Ambulance Chaser. This is fiction. It's a thriller. Uh, It is about a Pittsburgh lawyer who is accused of the murder of a young girl 30 years prior and has to go on the run to find the one person that can prove his innocence. And that will come out next year.
0: Well, I can't wait. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. And um, I was so zoned into your conversation. And I feel like I got to live it all with you. So thank you for sharing your story today, Brian. And I know that a lot of people will benefit from your words today. Thank you for joining me today on the GTFO podcast. This is Holly Kaplan. To connect with me for confidence coaching or speaking engagements, please connect with me at hollykaplan.com or find me on Instagram at GTFO underscore podcast. Thanks.